Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Bibles open to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. Follow the narrative in the Gospel of John up until this point. The Lord had presented himself as the Messiah of the Hebrew people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. The Apostle John now turns to the conflict that begins in Jerusalem, and it does not end until the people had put the Messiah to death. John chapter 5, and we start with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. An overnight security guard at a railroad yard accidentally locked himself in a refrigeration car one night. He knew the door could not be opened from the inside. He was trapped. There was no way out. He knew he would die there, either from the cold or the lack of oxygen. But it was the thought of freezing to death that concerned him the most. He screamed until his lungs burned. He banged on the door until his hands were swollen and bruised. His situation was hopeless. His fate was written. He decided that his last act would be to record his agonizing death for whoever would eventually find his body. Taking a pencil from his jacket pocket, he wrote on the wall of the train car, It is so cold in here I can hardly stand it. And after a while he struggled from the corner where he huddled and wrote a second line. It's colder still. My fingers are getting numb. And then later, I'm slowly freezing to death. And he finally wrote, These are probably my last words. By the time he scribbled his final sentence, the writing was almost unreadable. 
the hand of a dying man. His body was found the following morning slumped over in one corner of the refrigeration car. Now, it may seem a little odd, but the coroner actually had a tough time trying to determine the cause of death because he had determined that there had been enough ventilation inside the train car to give the man enough fresh air to last for days. And the refrigeration unit on his train car was not even working. So there was absolutely no way that this man would have frozen to death. In fact, when they opened the train car, the temperature inside of it was 56 degrees. Cold? Sure, but not cold enough to kill him in that short amount of time. This man had actually convinced himself that his situation was worse than it was. This man had given up hope. He'd given up on trying to live. A man without hope, this is the type of man that we meet in our text. 38 years of suffering had gotten him there. People with the mindset that they have nothing to live for, people like this are desperate when there is no hope. The spark of life begins to fade. Now, before we move further into John 5, there's a matter in the text that we need to consider. Stop and think of the intended meaning of this section of text, because nowhere do we see evidence that the man which Jesus had healed actually demonstrated any faith in him for salvation. And so it begs the question, why did Jesus heal this man? Certainly to demonstrate his mercy and his grace. Certainly to demonstrate yet again that he was in fact the Messiah of the Hebrew people. But there's something more. Listen, the Lord sought out this man. He healed him deliberately on the Sabbath day. And the reason that we will see in the coming studies throughout chapter 5 is to challenge the Jews, to challenge the traditions of the Jewish religion. He challenged all of the things that had been added on to the Hebrew faith by men. Jesus, God the Son, he knew that this would be the spark that would ignite the conflict so that he could challenge the outward religion of men. Jesus knew that this would bring upon him the hatred of men that only continued to grow up until his crucifixion. Notice how we begin in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know which feast this was. It could have been Purim, maybe the Passover again mentioned in chapter 6. All we know for certain is that some more time had passed, and Jesus once again was in Jerusalem for a feast. The intention of the Apostle John was to tell us the reason Jesus was in Jerusalem, carefully describing the ministry of the Lord. Take a look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. I am of the opinion that John wrote this as an old man after the Romans had destroyed the temple, after the Romans had laid siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was lying in ruins by the time that John recorded this, but John describes these places as they were, how he remembered them. On your study guide, you can see the map of Jerusalem. This pool is on the top part of the map to the right. The Sheep Gate, this was one of the northeastern gates of Jerusalem. This was the gate that they would use to bring in the sheep for sacrifice. 
You may remember from Nehemiah that when they went to rebuild the wall, they began at the Sheep Gate and they went all the way around the city until they made it back to the Sheep Gate. The pool itself was referred to by the Hebrew people as Bethesda. This literally meant house of mercy or house of outpouring. This was actually two pools next to each other with five colonnades or five covered areas with pillars. These covered porches gave shelter to the large numbers of sick people who were gathered there. Archaeologists have uncovered this pool and it matches the exact description that we are given here in the record of John. Think of the image that the Word of God is putting forth. This is down below the temple where the sick and the suffering were gathered. The educated elite would avoid this place because they did not want to come into contact with these people. It would have made them unclean. There was no compassion. There was very little concern for those in need. The pool was used to clean animals that were being taken to the temple for the sacrifice. The water was only two or three feet deep, and the water was filthy from the cleansing of the animals. But this is where the sick would gather. Now pay close attention to verses 3 and 4. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, the first problem that we have is that many of the modern Bibles like to put a footnote telling us that verse 3 should end after the word paralyzed and that verse 4 should not be in our Bibles. I disagree. It's just a few early manuscripts that omit these words, and the vast majority include them. And if this reading was correct without these words, verse 3 would read, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, and then the text would just jump down to verse 5. The text wouldn't make much sense. Skip down to verse 7 for a second. Even if you take out verse 4 and part of verse 3, you still have to wrestle with verse 7, which points us in the same direction. Notice verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, right before this, in verse 6, Jesus had asked the man if he wanted to be made well. And right away, the man turned to this idea of the water stirring, of the water healing him. Verses 3 and 4 fit with the teaching of verse 7. But then the question comes of how this fits in with the passage. I mean, doesn't it seem a little strange that the word of God would record that at certain times an angel of the Lord would come down, stir up the water, and whoever got into the water first would be healed. And for the rest, for those who are a little slow, they just had to suffer. Is this consistent with what we read of how God operates in both the new and the Old Testaments? I would answer that no, it's not consistent with the rest of the Word of God. It sounds more like cruelty than grace. But I think the simple answer is that what we have in verses 3 and 4 is the explanation of the common belief of the day. Let me clarify. It's pretty obvious from this text that something took place at this pool. 
Otherwise, we would not read in verse 3 that a great multitude of sick people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, they came to this place because this pool had a reputation as a place of healing. Try to remember the influence of the Greeks. The Greeks believed in Asclepius, the god of medicine, thought to be the god of healing. And the situation that John describes, it fits pretty well with the superstition that surrounded the worship of Asclepius. People believe weird things. We've been slowly putting in a lawn around our house over the last two summers. And in one spot, the dirt was rocky without a lot of topsoil. So the grass, it didn't grow. But to our neighbor, whose cat had died years before, in roughly the same place where our grass would not grow. To him, the reason our grass is stunted was because of the death of a cat. Surely, it must be sacred ground. People believe weird things. The history books tell us in Jerusalem that typically there would be less than 300 people by this pool. But when there was a feast in Jerusalem, two to 3,000 sick people would gather around the pool. The picture we're given here in verses 3 and 4 is of the people waiting, watching. The belief of the people is that when the water in the pool started moving, whoever jumped in first would be healed. These twin pools were actually a part of an extensive reservoir system, and the water came into the pools from Solomon's pools, which were all the way down to the southwest of Bethlehem. But it's also thought that these twin pools would get intermittent bursts of water from a natural spring. It's understood that this is what caused the swirling motion in the water, change in water pressure from the natural spring. At times, the spring didn't do much. At other times, it bubbled up into the pool. But the Jewish people had a fascination with angels. They were very superstitious. And so they interpreted this as angels moving the water. Some sources testify that the water was red, probably from iron, but red water was thought in that day to have a healing effect, much like a spa today. Water with high mineral contents can help people with muscle and joint problems. No one doubts that. But once that rumor mill got started about this place, it was hard to stop it. What a fitting image of the legalistic religion they had, sick people lying around everywhere, all waiting to race each other every time the water moved. The healthiest among them, those able to move, were the first into the water. It's the age-old mindset that God helps those who help themselves. Jesus knew all about this place. He knew all about the sick that gathered there. He knew all the legends about this pool. It was a lot like the crowds that gather today to go see the counterfeit healers. The healers manipulate the people, but the crowds gather because their pain is real. These people at the pool had no idea that the Son of God was standing in their midst. John tells us in verse 5 that a certain man was there who had an infirmity, 38 years. Do not pass by how desperate of a situation this was for this man. 38 years is a very long time. He had been there since before the birth of Christ. 
38 years was longer than the average life expectancy for a man in the first century Roman Empire. He had been sick an entire lifetime. I can only think that at first when this man arrived at the pool, he must have had hope that he would have been healed, but hope gave way to despair. The impression I walk away with in this text is that this man could not move or he could barely move. Days came and went. Days became months. Months became years. Others who were stronger or quicker were always ahead of him any time the waters moved. But yet, after 38 years, he was still clinging to this belief that the waters of this pool could heal. The words describe a man who was all alone. He felt abandoned, no friends, no family to help him. His only friends seemed to be the blind and the sick people at the pool, but even they were competing with him to be the first person into the water. And then, one day the Lord Jesus showed up to this pathetic scene. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus, God the Son, knew the situation of this man. He didn't need to ask. This was a man that many people knew had been sitting there for decades, which meant that once Christ healed him, it was a powerful testimony of the Son of God. Do you want to be made well? Jesus knew the answer to this. But the question was designed to get the man's attention. This man still had no idea that God the Son was standing there speaking to him. But right away, think of how the man responds. His faith was in the wrong object. His focus goes right back to the pool. Hope came alive. Because if someone would help him to be the first person into the water, then maybe, just maybe, he could be healed. This man had the desire to be healed, but without strength and without friends to help, he just could never make it to be the first one into the pool. This man, he had a poor view, a poor understanding of God and his grace. He truly believed that God operates on a first-come, first-served basis. But the Lord had a better answer. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. If the pool was truly a healing agent of the Lord, could not have Christ just helped the man down into the water the next time that the water began to stir. The Lord spoke to this man with divine authority. Jesus was the source of divine healing, not some pool. Let me put it in today's terms. The Lord is the one who heals, not a faith healer. This must have seemed like an impossible task to this man, but he did what he was told. There is power in the words of the Lord Jesus. His bed was probably a straw mat, something that he could roll up and carry. Now, the fact that this man carried his bed away, the fact that this man walked away, it testifies that this man was immediately and completely healed. This man's body was restored. And it was another sign to the Hebrew people that their Messiah had come. 
but I am left wondering how much this man understood because there seems to be an absence of faith. This man did not ask for healing. He showed no faith that John reports of, no word of gratitude, no worship of Christ, and he didn't even seem to know who Jesus was. But what about the rest? Have you ever looked at this text and wondered why Jesus didn't just heal them all? Verse 3 told us there was a great multitude of people gathered there. Jesus could have cleaned out that entire pool. He healed only the one man. Here was a man that had been sick for 38 years. No one could deny it. No one could deny a miracle had taken place. But Jesus only healed one man. And the reason, don't miss this, the reason was because the miracle was intended to point people to the person and the message of the Messiah. In other words, he did not come just to heal the bodies of men. People miss this point. They get focused on their health instead of their faith. Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father, and the signs were often done to authenticate his message. Remember when John the Baptist sent the message to Jesus in Matthew 11, asking if he was indeed the Christ? Jesus responded, tell John, the blind see and the lame walk. This was the prediction of the Messiah found in Isaiah 35. This was a public sign for all of Jerusalem that the Messiah had come. Take the last part of verse 9 with verse 10. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now up until this point in chapter 5, there's been no mention that this happened on the Sabbath. But now, the real twist begins, because for any Jew reading this, the revelation that this took place on the Sabbath, it would have been stunning. This was a game changer. Back in verse 8, the word for walk, it literally means to walk about. The Lord chose to heal this man on the Sabbath, and then he told the man to walk about carrying his bed. He knew. The Lord knew that commanding the man to carry his mat out into the public would anger the Jewish leaders even more. But as God the Son, he was challenging the religion of men. These were his people. And the Sabbath became one of the central issues where the Lord Jesus confronted them. Notice how quick the Jews acted. They were always watching and they responded in verse 10. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. They should have been focused on their own worship of the Lord. But instead, they were on guard to make sure that no one broke the rules, the traditions of men regarding the Sabbath. We know Christians like this. Christians that need to spend a little more time focused on their own walk with Jesus Christ. Let us be careful in our understanding of what was taking place. The Lord was not instructing this man to break the Sabbath, just the traditions about the Sabbath. The man-made rules choked out the beauty of the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath to be a blessing. Men had turned it into a burden. The Mosaic law instructed that they should not work on the Sabbath, but the traditions that had been added on missed the intention of God for the Sabbath. 
thousands of rules had been added, and they had it broken down to 39 different categories of work, which were absolutely forbidden on the Sabbath. And one of those categories forbid carrying things on the Sabbath. It forbid carrying a load from one dwelling to another based on a complete misapplication of Jeremiah 17. Nothing could be carried from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath intentionally. And if you did, you deserve death by stoning. This was considered to be a capital offense. Listen to Exodus 31 verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now, work was not to be done on the Sabbath, but what is the definition of work? That was the issue. These rules they had even forbid carrying a needle in your robe. They argued whether or not you could wear artificial teeth or a wooden leg. The original intent was that work meant whatever you did to earn a living. That should not be done on the Sabbath. And according to the Word of God, the only way that this man would have actually been guilty of breaking the Sabbath is if it was his day-to-day job to carry around mats to earn a living. But for the rabbis, in their minds, this man stood guilty. This was something he could die for. It makes me think of the words of Jesus in Mark 2, where he said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created by God so that men could have a time of rest, a time for worship, It was a gift for man, a reminder that God is the one who provides in man's work. It is simply the means of his provision. Think about what is missing in this statement from the Jews in verse 10. There is absolutely no concern, no compassion for this man. Instead of rejoicing with this man, the Jews were concerned about their rules. They didn't seem to care that the miracle indicated the Hebrew Messiah walked among them. And yet these Jews didn't even mention or seem to care about the great miracle that had just taken place. The Jews were not even concerned about this man. They were concerned about their rules, their traditions. People want rules. They want to be able to boast about what they have done to earn favor with God. Jesus came to proclaim grace. The Lord of the Sabbath instructed this man to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Notice the dialogue starting in verse 11. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. It's hard to know how we should take the words of verse 11. Did this man understand that the Christ had healed him? Did this man understand that the one who had healed him had more authority than the Jewish leaders? I doubt it. I doubt he understood all these things. 
I tend to think in verse 11 that this man was shifting the blame, trying to avoid responsibility by shifting the blame onto the one who had healed him. The blame shifting seemed to have worked. The Jews wanted to know what person would dare command someone to break their rules. How sad that this man didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus had withdrawn. And remember what we continue to see in this gospel record. Jesus knew it was not yet the hour of the cross, so he continued to avoid confrontations when large crowds were gathered. Now this man, he was not left in his ignorance very long. Notice our last two verses. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. It's a good sign that this man had gone to the temple, and we can only hope that he had gone there to give thanks to God for the healing he had received. As a cripple, this man would not have been welcome in the temple for 38 years, but now that he had been healed, he was able to enter. This man did not know where to find Jesus but the Lord knew where to find him. The Lord had something to say to this man that needed to be said. There was a connection between this man's sickness and his sin. Verse 14 should grab at our heartstrings because it's a somber thought to realize that sin could produce a worse condition than the one that had already overtaken this man. This man's sin, whatever it was, had overtaken him in his youth. The sin had taken place 38 years before. It had robbed him of the best years of his life and had left him crippled until the later years of his life. And we know from the word of God that all sickness is the result of the fall of man. And we are quick to recognize that much of the sickness in this world is not, is not because of the specific sin of the individual. But let us consider the other side of things. Some of it is. Many of the problems and some of the sickness that comes upon men and women is the direct result of sin. And it's not our job to know when it is. It's not our job to judge others. But sometimes there is a direct link between sin and suffering, between sin and sickness. This seems to be a case where Christ healed the man, even though we have very little evidence that this man actually had faith. In verse 14, sin no more and lest a worse thing come upon you. They're connected in the wording. They're tied together. The understanding was that the situation this man had found himself in for 38 years was because of his own sin. The Lord had talked to the man about his sin as no one ever talked to him before. The command to sin no more carries with it a sense of urgency. If this man did not turn from his sin, something worse would come upon him. I don't believe the Lord was referring to hell. The context was not eternal life. It was sickness. You don't escape hell just by stopping your sin. It's by faith in Christ. He was warning the man that worse things could happen if he continued to sin because grace is never a license to sin and sin never pays. Once he understood it was Jesus who had healed him, 
he reported back to the Jews that Jesus was the one who had made him well. I tend to think that his report to the Jews demonstrated that he feared the Jews more than he feared God. Listen to the words of Peggy Noyers. Peggy writes, My job as a psychiatric home health nurse brought me in touch with many people who were hurt or angry and who were searching for answers to problems in their lives. I knew that Jesus was the answer, but I couldn't bring myself to talk to them about him. I was the master of excuses until one patient changed my life. Wanda was a 56-year-old widow in chronic depression. All of her family had died, some of them tragically within a span of 16 years. The loss and her grief overwhelmed her until life for her became a burden she was unable to bear. One day she quit her job, went home and pulled the curtains and refused to leave her house. Eventually she stopped eating and even the smallest of tasks became too difficult for her to do. A neighbor noticed the change in Wanda's behavior and that neighbor made arrangements for her to be taken to a hospital where she was admitted to the psychiatric ward. Peggy writes, At the end of the hospital stay, When she went home, I was assigned to be her home health nurse. I visited her weekly to make sure she was taking her medication and was eating and taking care of herself. Over the course of six months, Wanda continued to recover. Pay attention to this part. Listen to her words. Although I knew she needed to meet Jesus as her Savior, I reasoned that she would soon be attending church and would hear about him there. Do you hear what she was saying? It was easier to just invite her to church than to actually tell her about redemption in Christ. That's a trap a lot of Christians are falling into. Peggy continues, One day I went to Wanda's house for my regular visit and I was surprised to find the door ajar. I knocked and when there was no response, I pushed the door open and stepped inside. The living room, was vacant, so I went to her bedroom and found her lifeless body on the bed. There were several empty medication bottles beside her, and in her hand she held a note addressed to me. I sat on the bed beside her and took the note. It read, Dear Peggy, I'm so sorry. I tried it your way, but I got tired. Please forgive me. I tried. I just couldn't do it. I got tired. Listen to this last part of what Peggy wrote. I slid off the bed onto my knees and cried my heart out to my loving, forgiving father. Lord, she tried it my way. I gave her the best that I had, but it was my way. I didn't tell her about you. I didn't tell her about your way. On my knees, beside Wanda's lifeless body, I promised God that I would never pass by another opportunity to tell someone about him. If there's one lesson that we need to walk away with from John 5, it is that we do not want the lost to do things our way. We want them to follow Christ, Christ for salvation, Christ for the healing of the soul. Legalism, it demands that people follow rules. Legalism is an enemy. It smothers people. 
because it causes people to gauge their relationship with God based on a list of do's and don'ts. Legalism causes you to measure people based on how they perform. It teaches that the righteousness of Christ depends completely on our efforts. Paul said the righteousness of Christ comes through faith in Romans 3.22. Instead of leading men to experience the joy of a relationship with Christ, legalism leads men to become critical and judgmental. Freedom in Christ dies. Worship becomes routine. Legalism is a subtle, silent killer of the faith. It denies people of God's grace, and it presumes that we can earn favor with God. Legalism is man-made righteousness that exalts man rather than Christ, and it leads people down two paths, pride in the ability to keep rules and depression for those who recognize they can't. Jesus came to restore faith, to restore worship, and to restore grace. Embrace it in your life. Proclaim it to those you know and live it before God. Know his love and know the joy of leading people to life in the precious Son of God. The Apostle Paul would be on the internet. (laughs) That's a statement I often make when I speak at conferences, just to raise the understanding that the internet is an amazing mission field. If your church or ministry is looking to get started, head to our affiliate page on our website, returntotheword.com. It's under the About tab, listed under Podcasting Resources. There you will find the companies that we recommend for podcast art, website hosting, and even the microphones and the equipment to use. We've also partnered with Dave Jackson in the School of Podcasting. He can teach you all you need to know to get started. Again, you can find those resources on our webpage, returntotheword.com, under the About tab, listed under Podcasting Resources. The mission field is now at your fingertips. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.